Is Lori Vallow competent? Will Chad Daybell ever get to trial? Did they actually solve the Delphi murders? And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, crime talk aficionados. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Hit that little bell so you receive notifications. And remember, you can listen to us on your favorite podcasting app at any time as well. All right. First, let's get to the docket. Is Lori Vallow competent? Well, it looks like we're going to find out on November 9th. A review hearing has been scheduled for November 9th. And on that particular time, the court is going to, pursuant to statute, try to determine if she is, in fact, competent to proceed. It is a review hearing. It would appear that the status report that would have been prepared pursuant to statute has been prepared and ultimately delivered to the court. And then they're going to decide what is going to take place. So that November 9th hearing, what will actually take place? Well, we won't know because it will be done in private. The question is, as you may recall, the last time that there were reviews taking place, Lori Valla was not competent. It wasn't until she was actually restored to competency that they actually just set a date. So we don't know for certain, but based upon past performance, which is often indicative of future results, that's right. It looks like she's not going to be joining us anytime soon. Now, next on the docket, Chad Daybell, is he ever going to get to trial? Well, at least not in January, that's for sure. And like Judge Boyce likes to do there in Idaho, he's going to set a conference date, a status conference date to set a date. We'll see when that actually takes place. However, I think his order that he put out, there's a couple of things that are worth noting in there, particularly the jab to uh, Mr. Pryor as to basically saying, what the heck have you been doing for the last two years? So let's go ahead and take a look. Now, the court, uh, like all good courts, likes to give a procedural background, right? It's the writing style that lawyers do. It's called IRAC. And then you put facts in there, right? Facts, issue, what's the rule, what's the law, then the analysis, and then the conclusion, I-R-A-C, IRAC. Pretty simple. So the court says in the facts section, hey, the court minutes reflect that back on December 2nd of 2021, the court held a scheduling conference in this case wherein counsel for Mr. Daybell argued for Mr. Daybell's trial to begin in October of 2022. The state of Idaho requested trial to commence in late summer of fall of 2023. Ultimately, after coordinating with the Ada County courts where the trial would be held, the court was set for January 9th of 2023 and issues ordered. And then the court goes on to know that on September 27th of 2022, Mr. Daybell filed a motion to continue the trial, um, arguing that a substantial amount of trial investigation and preparation and significant amount of discovery was still outstanding. On October 6th, the state filed a response to the motion, essentially as a non-objection to the continuance, and requested that the court uh, stay this case pending a determination as it relates to the co-defendant, Lori Vallow. And then on October 13th, the court heard the parties on the motion in a hearing and took the matter under advisement. And then the court issues the following orders. So that's the facts. The issue is, should the, should the case be continued? Then the court goes through the law. The decision to grant or deny a motion to continue rests within the sound discretion of the trial court. 
and basically uh, cites some cases as it relates to alleged tardiness of the disclosure uh, could prejudice the defendant in a particular case. And basically to show that there, if there is prejudice, the defense has the burden of showing that there's prejudice at this point. Uh, really doesn't go on. And his analysis says the court reiterates that it has denied the state's request to enter a stay in this case. So this case is going forward regardless of what happens with Lori Vallow. And they go on and said, let's address the motion to continue in the trial. And notes that during the hearing on October 13th, counsel for Chad DeBell again emphasized that he could and would be ready to proceed on January 9th. However, then he also represented that a significant amount of discovery will still be outstanding and made the request to continue to trial in order to abate any possible prejudice to the state. The motion argues the defendant is entitled to adequate amount of time to prepare for the capital trial, and the court agrees with that, all being said. And then he said, all parties have been aware that this is a capital case since August of 2021 when the government filed their notice of intent to seek the death penalty. I mean, that's a long time ago, ladies and gentlemen. Here we are, October 31st of 2022. So they've known literally for, what, 14 months now. So in considering that this is a capital case, the court had every juncture between mindful of uh, protecting all aspects of ensuring a fair proceeding to the parties involved. The court also took into consideration the setting of a trial date in January of 2023 um, and that the representations of counsel, the defense would be ready for trial back in October of 2022 and now objected to the trial beginning to set in 2023. So the basis argued in the motion to continue reveals the unfortunate current posture of this case where only now too late, counsel fully realizes the complexity of preparing a defense in this particular case. Oh, gee, I wonder who's mentioned that in the past. Oh, maybe this guy? It's a death penalty case, and it's been one attorney. It would be a full-time job for a team of attorneys, and yet he thought that he was going to be able to do this on his own? Come on. The court is calling out uh, Mr. Pryor on this like we've been calling him out for a while now. Now, the motion to continue cites, among its many reasons, to delay to trial the constitutional rights for effective assistance to counsel and the, the required individualized sentencing proceeding associated with a capital case, the need for expert witnesses and development of a mitigation evidence, and the purely speculative argument that some other attorney may at some point join the team and that a new attorney would need additional time to prepare. Now, while the court is left questioning how and why such issues, all present at the outset of this case, are only now being asserted as a basis for continuance, um, the arguments as a whole leave the court with abiding sense that the defense has indeed demonstrated that it is not and cannot be ready for trial in January of 2023. The ongoing insistence at the time that the defendant is ready to proceed to trial, including the representations made on October 13th, are contradicted by the assertions in the motion, which leave this court to determine that the trial in January 2023 would in all likelihood result in the defense counsel's inability to be adequately prepared, thus infringing on the defendant's rights. Therefore, they're going to uh, vacate it, and the court takes another jab 
because like I said, this has been going on and he just now realizes, oh, I need to do all this mitigation work. Are you kidding me? The court takes another jab and says, the court expects counsel for the parties to have a full and complete understanding of what preparation remains in rescheduling the trial so as to avoid any further unnecessary delays in the administration of this case. I think if we read between the lines of the court's orders, the court, the Judge Boyce is not happy with Mr. Pryor. First you say you're ready to go, then you say, no, I'm not. What is it? Oh, by the way, I haven't done anything on mitigation and the death penalty, and I may bring an attorney on, but he may need some more time to prepare. Really? Why has this not been taking place? I don't get it. I don't understand it. I've said this before. You can go back and look at my previous videos. Now is the time for Mr. Pryor to ask to get off this case if he is not capable of doing it and if there are not resources available to effectively represent somebody on a death penalty case. Normally, you have at least two trial attorneys, an appellate attorney, and a mitigation expert. The everyday Joe cannot afford a death penalty case out of pocket unless they are uber wealthy and money is no object. Somehow, I don't think that's the case. I somehow don't think that the house that Mr. Pryor took as payment from Chad Day Bell is even gonna come close to covering his time, let alone all the experts that may be required to challenge evidence in this case. We're talking cell phone experts. We're talking DNA experts, crime scene reconstructionists, mitigation experts, which include psychologists, psychiatrists. There's simply no way that it's gonna happen. So, Mr. Pryor, this is your opportunity. If you need to withdraw, now is the time to do it. Otherwise, you're gonna be on the hook to go try this case without the necessary resources. And then more than likely, this case is gonna come back on ineffective assistance of counsel. What can you do? All right, before we get to the Delphi murders, and we're gonna talk about, you know, what does somebody accused of a horrendous crime look like? How do you know? Apparently the guy in the Delphi murders was a uh, pharmacy tech, worked at the CVS, no prior criminal history. Well, there's gotta be something in the background there, assuming, you know, we'll give them the presumption of innocence, but we gotta check it out. That's why everybody needs to go to crimetalksearch.com because if you have any questions, the slightest suspicion, the gut feeling, something just doesn't feel right about somebody that's coming into your life, you need to go to crimetalksearch.com. You'll get a background search literally conducted while you wait and you will get information regarding whether they have criminal history, whether they have to register as a sexual offender, uh, whether they're married, whether they're actually truly divorced, do they own property, are there civil judgments against them? All those types of things, when you're getting serious about somebody, you wanna take a look at and see if you want them to be in your life. So go to crimetalksearch.com, sign up for that background subscription service. You can cancel any time, but while you have it, you can do the background search on as many people as you want. CrimeTalkSearch.com, you'll be happy you did. Next on the docket, have the authorities really solved the Delphi murders? Well, there's a man accused of murdering the two teenagers out for a hike back in 2017, and he's been charged with their death. Richard Allen, he's 50 years old, and he lives in Delphi, Indiana, and he was arrested Friday afternoon for the deaths of Libby German and Abigail Williams. He's now charged with two counts of felony homicide. It's unclear exactly 
What new information led to Mr. Allen's arrest now, more than five years after the 2017 slains? Now, Mr. Allen has lived in Delphi since at least 2006 and his whole life in Indiana. Now, he is married and works as a pharmacy technician receiving uh, his most recent pharmaceutical technician license back in February of 2018, one year from the murders. Now, in August, Indiana State Police were spotted searching the Wabash River in Peru, around 40 minutes east of Delphi in connection with the case. At the time of the murders, Mr. Allen would have been 44 years old. The now 50-year-old is, is the local residence where the girls lived, obviously, and he has now pled not guilty to the charges and is being held at the White County Jail without bond. He's currently due back in court on January 13th, with a presumptive trial date of March 20th, 2023. He apparently is not cooperating with the uh, police in any way, which he has an absolute constitutional right not to do. And frankly, it took them five years. So the question is now is what's different? Because remember, there were lots of other suspects as well. He does not appear to have any prior criminal record. And as I noted, uh, works as a pharmacy tech. Now, the police said they will not be releasing uh, evidence in this case under, pursuant to a court order, and the probable cause document has been sealed, at least temporarily, due to extra scrutiny associated with the case and to protect the integrity of the investigation. Now, the investigation is far com from complete, prosecutors say, and they will not jeopardize its integrity by releasing information before its time. The police said, if you choose to be critical of our silence, be critical of me, referring to the police chief uh, and not the front line. He said, these are folks who have devoted their entire lives to a conclusion, in other words, a guilty verdict. Now, Allen has long been presumed to be apparently an unidentified man seen approaching German and Williams when they were crossing the Monon High Bridge in the woods outside of Delphi, Indiana, back in February of 2017. The bridge is located just a few miles from his home, just a half mile from the middle school where the two teens attended school. Now, for those who don't recall, what happened to Libby and Abby? Well, Libby and Abby went missing on the 13th of February, 2017, after they set off on a hike along the Monon High Bridge Trail in Delphi, Indiana. The bodies were discovered the next day in a wooded area around a half mile from the trail. For years, police have refused to say how the girls died and have revealed few details about the crime scene. However, details came to light in a search warrant application obtained by a podcast that warrant filed by an FBI agent investigating the murders back in 2017, and it was partly redacted, was to carry out a search of the home by a local man by the name of Ronald Logan. Now, Libby had shared a Snapchat of herself walking along the railroad tracks on the day of her murder, with the Snapchat updates causing a sensation uh, that made the case one of the United States' most notorious unsolved murders. The girls' bodies were found about a half mile from the bridge, and the agent revealed that the girls had lost a lot of blood during their deaths and that the killers believed to have moved and staged their bodies before taking some sort of souvenir from the scene. Now, for the first time, the warrant also revealed that some type of weapon had killed the teenagers. The word for the weapon was redacted in the document. Now, the murderer would have been covered in the victim's blood in the aftermath of the slains due to the large amount of blood that was lost by the victims at the scene. 
reading straight from the affidavit. On the day the girls went missing, Libby had posted photos of Snapchat on her of her and Abby walking along the trail. Now, the happy images of the best friends is believed to be their last photos before they passed away. In a move that propelled the investigation forward, Libby also captured a grainy video on her phone of a man dressed in blue jeans, a blue jacket, and a blue cap walking along an abandoned railroad bridge. Investigators released the grainy image from the video and a chilling audio of the man telling the two girls, go down the hill. Because of the nature of the victim's wounds, it is nearly certain the perpetrators of the crime would have uh, had blood on his or her personal clothing. Up until now, the man has never been identified. Now, police gave the description of a man, a white male, between the ages of 16 and 40, and believed to be 5'6 to 5'10 in height and weighing 180 to 200 pounds. Multiple police sketches were circulated of a man matching the description of the man in the footage. And after news of Allen's arrest broke on Friday, a disturbing photo emerged showing his daughter posing in the same spot where the teenage victims were last seen alive. Investigators have long suspected that this man is the girl's killer and have praised the girls for documenting the video as evidence. Now, the photo that we're talking about is of Brittany Zapanta, the daughter of Richard Allen, on the Monon High Bridge. It was posted on Facebook by Allen's wife, Kathy, back in 2018, just over a year after the girl's disappearance in February 2017, although it's unclear when the photo was taken. There's also no indication as to who took the snapshot on the bridge. And another photo posted online showed Alan smiling with his wife while in the background over his shoulder, a police sketch of the Delphi murder suspect could be seen posted on a notice board on a wall. It is unclear when and where the photos were taken. The versions of the suspect sketch in the image was not released until April of 2019. So the photo would have been taken at least two years after the homicides. Um, it was later revealed that his home was less than two miles from the Delphi train bridge where Williams and German were last seen. Uh, the arrest of Allen could be the end of the multi-year long investigation during which numerous possible leads have led nowhere and police remained tight-lipped about the case. Exactly how the girls died remained unknown to the public and the state that their bodies were discovered in also remains shrouded in mystery. Let's not forget that over the years, numerous people have uh, been put forth as possible suspects in this case. Ron Logan, who died in 2020, had long been the prime suspect. The girls' bodies were discovered on his property, just 1,400 uh, feet from his house. And it was revealed over the summer that his alibi for the day of the murder did not exactly line up. His home was searched and he was arrested shortly after the killings, but he was released and never charged. Then we have Keegan Klein of Peru, Indiana, was also previously named as a suspect in the murders. He is said to have admitted to talking to Libby German using a fake Instagram profile called Anthony Schatz. Klein, who is heavy set and pasty faced, used an image of a ripped and muscular young man to trick the underage girls into speaking with him. Now, he is said to have arranged to meet with Libby on the Delphi High Bridge the day before she was actually murdered while walking along it. But he is also said to have shared his Anthony Schatz password with others, including his father, and said his dad could be a prime suspect in the killing. Now, Klein is being held in jail after being arrested on separate charges regarding underage images. 
Neither he nor his father had been arrested over the Delphi killings. But you know what all those other possible people may be? Alternate suspects. Yes, at trial. We'll have to see what takes place with Mr. Allen. I hope this is the case. If he is truly guilty, the truth uh, will come out. If he is an innocent man being wrongfully accused, I guess we'll have to wait and see. And I understand the authorities were tight-lipped. They did what they could, but they also put out there lots of different people over the years that were possible suspects. So I think we're all just going to have to wait before we get too excited thinking that this is the guy until and if we have more information. And as always, we give everyone the presumption of innocence here on CrimeTac unless and until they've either pled guilty or been found guilty by a jury of their peers. All right, finally, our dumb criminal of the day. So a couple of deputies responded to a Lowe's home improvement store um, and they found a suspicious person. Two failed victims advised that Christopher Todd Piscatelli had exposed himself to them. Now, Piscatelli was at the incident location when the deputies arrived. And while the deputy was speaking with the victims, Piscatelli began walking away. The deputy made contact with Piscatelli and attempted to detain him during the investigation. While the deputy spoke with Mr. Piscatelli, the deputy noted in his report that Piscatelli asked him if he could dump a bag of chips that he was holding onto the deputy. The deputy removed the bag from his hands. The report further stated that Mr. Piscatelli asked if he could urinate on the deputy, and Piscatelli then grabbed a gallon of water, which the deputy also removed from his hand. Now, according to the deputies, the deputy attempted to place Mr. Piscatelli in handcuffs due to his erratic behavior. The deputy noted that Mr. Piscatelli placed his hands behind his back in an effort to resist the deputy. Once he was handcuffed, Mr. Piscatelli began pulling away from the deputy and he refused to walk towards the deputy's patrol vehicle. Well, the deputy responded by bringing Mr. Piscatelli down to the ground on his stomach and Mr. Piscatelli began kicking with his legs and in fact struck the deputy in the hip. That's right, assault on a peace officer. Additional units arrived on scene, placed Mr. Piscatelli inside the deputy patrol vehicle and then returned to the two victims to discuss the alleged incident. The victim stated that they had just left work and walking in the parking lot when they noticed Mr. Piscatelli was near their vehicle. The victim stated that Mr. Piscatelli walked away from her vehicle, turned around, and then exposed himself to her. The first victim advised that she alerted a male manager who arrived in the parking lot within uh, meeting the second victim. According to the second victim, Mr. Piscatelli had started to a fire in the parking lot underneath a bucket, and shortly after she began recording the incident on her cell phone. Mr. Piscatelli allegedly attempted to uh, enter two rental trucks. You never know what's going to happen to Lowe's, I guess, ladies and gentlemen. After the second victim and the manager stopped Mr. Piscatelli from entering the rental vehicles, she advised that Mr. Piscatelli then pulled down his underwear, exposing himself to her and showed her butt. Needless to say, obviously, Mr. Piscatelli um, has been charged not only with uh, damaging other property valued at uh, $100, but he has been charged with indecent exposure and assault on a peace officer because he also said he wanted to spit in the deputy's face. And he also struck the deputy in the struggle as well. And not surprisingly, Mr. Piscatelli has prior convictions for exposure of sexual organs in another county where he remains in custody. But look at this guy. 
being held on a $31,000 bond, at least he is keeping his chin up. Look at that smile, giving us the old thumbs up. He's our dumb criminal of the day. Congratulations, sir. Mr. Piscatelli, you made it. All right, thanks for watching. Hope you have a wonderful day. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.